The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I'll, I'll kick us off. Just a really warm welcome to everybody. It's just uh, what a delight to uh, join together and study the Dharma, practice together, explore it together, and not so much that we have all the answers and that we're going to provide all the answers, but just to kind of, you know, engage with the teachings together in a way and to explore them. It's, you know, it's a beautiful thing. It's really touching for me. And um, maybe I'll say just a few words about um, this class, just a few words, and then I'll pass it on to my um, co-teachers here. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Diana Clark, and again, a warm welcome. And um, this class is, we're doing this kind of format where it's Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, all in one week. We're just going to get into the groove of equanimity for this week as a beautiful way to kind of cap off uh, 2020. And then just a note that the class on Saturday is a little bit longer than the class on Tuesday and Thursday. And then maybe I'll um, turn it over to my co-teachers and they can introduce themselves and throw their voices in the room. Yeah, maybe I'll go next. So my name's Ying, Ying Chen. I'm just so happy and delighted to seeing you all. Um, yeah, so uh, Sutta study and practice has been just a real, real nourishing source of my practice. And I'm just happy to share this with you all and with my co-teachers. So welcome. Go ahead, David. Yeah, I'll add my welcome to Diana, uh, Diana's and Ying's welcome, and just say something to just kind of re-strike the study and practice note. Um, that we, we have each of us in our ways found it very rich uh, to bring some of the um, engagement with the textual tradition that underlies these, the, the teachings in our scene, uh, bring them into our practice. And, and really make them a living part of our practice. Uh, and uh, so it's a great pleasure to think that there are other kindred spirits out there. And uh, just wanna add that to my welcome. Welcome to, this, um, welcome to this kind of study and practice mode or aspect of uh, enriching practice. And we really look forward to doing this exploration with you. I will note, Diana, when you said we wouldn't be answering all the questions about 10 people left, but maybe, maybe others will come back. But yeah, Kim. Okay, so um, I would also like to put my voice in. I'm Kim Allen, and it's really nice to see so much interest in this topic. And also it's a joy to be able to uh, teach with Diana and Ying and David. We've done a number of these together and um, we're, um, uh, maybe I'll share that one of our little jokes is that we're always happy when we find that we have more students than teachers <laughs> as soon as they get the, that many signups. And I think we've done quite well this time. So yes, this um, echoing the uh, comments about study and practice, it 
strikes me as so ironic and somehow interesting that here we are in this totally modern online format studying these teachings from you know thousands of years ago and yet when we engage with them they touch in the heart at really what is special just about being human something that crosses space and time i'm always struck by that when i engage with these texts and i hope you will be also so then with that um, maybe i'll um give us something of an overview of the material that we're thinking about for this, that sort of inspired us for this class, is that we, we looked at this term equanimity. It's sort of a not exactly an everyday word uh, that we use, or maybe we have some kind of an impression of what it is that's just from regular usage, but it is used quite frequently in the Buddhist teachings often um, in a number of different lists in different ways. And we started realizing, well, is this term exactly the same thing every time it's talked about? Um, and we thought, well, maybe not, or maybe it's one thing that has a lot of different facets to it, different dimensions to it. And as it's engaged with in different practices, it might have a different flavor. It's kind of the word that we settled on is that equanimity will have a different flavor. For example, if it's engaged with um, as an insight practice and part, ends up being part of the factors of awakening, that might be a little bit different flavor than yeah. if it's engaged with as a Brahma Vihara, as one of the heart practices. So it shows up kind of in different ways under different conditions. And so uh, we thought to explore some of that in this class and in particular, the awakening factor uh, will be explored today. So this is kind of a deep steadiness or non-entanglement or even letting go in the mind. Um, equanimity has that flavor when it's used as a factor of awakening in those practices. And then Thursday, we'll look more at the Brahma Vihara, at the heart practice, in which case uh, equanimity could be said to be a form of love. I mean, they, they all, in the, our tradition, we understand the Brahma Viharas to all arise out of metta, the first one, loving kindness. And so then you get to equanimity at the end, and people say, well, why is that even related to these other sort of more warm feeling ones? But it's a kind of love. It's the love of the truth. And so we will explore what that means and how it comes out of the other and relates to the other heart qualities that we're maybe more familiar with. And then um, equanimity is also a very important part of uh, samadhi or maybe concentration or, you know, we'll, we'll use a number of different words for that. But it emerges um, as a sort of a deep um, simplification of the mind as we engage with uh, samadhi or gathering of the mind type practices. And that will be our focus on Saturday. And we have a little bit more time to do some longer meditations. So I hope that uh, in the course of this exploration of different facets or flavors of equanimity, you'll come to see how there, there might be some uh, different qualities to them and also how they're developed and cultivated. And we'll go through in each case some practices that uh, help to uh, connect with the kind of equanimity that's talked about in that practice. And we'll see that um, in most cases, equanimity comes out sort of at the end. It's um, So the word we came up with and when discussing this is that it's kind of a capstone. 
to a number of practices. You know, you do other things and then somehow arrive at equanimity. It's also called in a technical term in the teachings, it's called a resultant. It's something that comes about when other conditions are in place or when obstructing conditions have been removed, then it can be there. So we'll see how that comes about in a, from a variety of different angles as we explore it. And then you know, I'd be remiss not to say that there are enormous benefits to equanimity and to this cultivation. Uh, a steady mind is a gift to the world, if not, and of course to ourselves, but um, you know, we'll see the, the wonderful beauty of the equanimous mind, not at all cold or indifferent or uninterested, but really quite engaged, but in a non, non-attached way. So, I hope that was enough of an advertisement, perhaps, to um, have some sense of what we're going to get into in the next three sessions. Um, so then let's, um, well, maybe I'll just pause and, and ask if there are any kind of overall questions or questions about the format or the recording or anything about the sort of the logistics of the course. And I can't see all your hands, so you could use the little blue hand if you know how to do that on the participants tab or just unmute yourself. I'm not expecting any questions necessarily. I just wanted to not go forward before everyone was comfortable with all that. Okay. Okay, very good. So today's focus then is uh, equanimity kind of in the in the neighborhood, let's say, of being a factor of awakening. Um, you know, because maybe we don't get to the factors you know, up to the last factor of awakening immediately, but there's a lot of um, qualities that we develop that are in, the, in this neighborhood. So it's maybe, maybe this is the most familiar form of equanimity that you might think about, what you've learned or practiced already. So it's equanimity as, as steadiness and steadfastness in the face of our changing experience. So the ability not to react, not to get caught up, not to get drawn in, uh, but instead to um, be able to just be with experience, if you will. That's kind of the most broad idea. So I said a moment ago that equanimity has different flavors in different practices. So we're gonna start to kind of hone in on what we mean here. Uh, the monastic teacher, um, Analio, Venerable Analio, he calls, he finds it useful actually to distinguish different terms um, for these different flavors. So he calls the factor of awakening equipoise and the Brahma Vihara equanimity, because in his mind, they're, they're different enough. And I, I wanted to name that at the beginning. I think we'll just say equanimity throughout this course, but um, uh, the word equipoise, at least to me, has a sense of, um, it brings in explicitly the idea of standing in a steady and balanced way. The word poise, equipoise, has a sense of being there in a balanced way. So I think that um, maybe captures the flavor quite nicely. The most common poly word for equanimity is upekka. Um, that's U-P-E-K-K-H-A. Upeka, and it literally means, you know, the word roots mean uh, looking on. So the implication is that one has kind of a big picture view, or um, you could imagine, maybe, maybe you could imagine sort of standing up on a hill, but it doesn't have to be like in a remote way. 
Oh, thank you for writing that in the chat, David. So it doesn't have to be in sort of a remote detached way, but it's a sense that we're with something, but we also are aware of the bigger picture that it's happening in. And so we're not as likely to get sucked into the details of it, caught up in the uh, excitement of it or some such. So we're, we're not getting you know, pushed around by it. That's actually another meaning of um, Upeka is that it has a, uh, a neutral feeling tone to it. It's related to feeling tone. So there's also an implication that we're not getting pushed around by things that are pleasant and unpleasant, which is something that we'll look at also when we get to the um, Dharma teaching, uh, the, the Sutta quote. So this is how it's used in the, the factor of awakening. The, the mind is stable in the face of changing experience, which is actually what allows it to see clearly enough you know, among all this change, the mind can see clearly enough in the end to finding an alternative to change. So let's look then at a, a sutta where the Buddha talks about cultivating a mind with this kind of steadiness or steadfastness. And that I think was sent to you by email, but I'm going to read the key section. So uh, that'll be fine. So in this, in this mm -hmm. sutta, which is from Majjhima Nikaya 62, he is talking to his son, Rahula, and he's encouraging Rahula to learn to sit calmly in the face of strong feelings or strong feeling tone. And so this is the passage that's quoted probably the most often. You may have you know, heard this from other places. So Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, Arisen, agreeable, and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as people throw clean things and dirty things, excrement, urine, spittle, pus, and blood on the earth, and the earth is not repelled, humiliated, and disgusted because of that, so too, Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, Arisen, agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. So it's quite powerful language. So we can maybe notice first that the earth is just such a, it starts with a very visceral image. There's going to be other images later, but the earth is strong, steadfast. It's also vast. You know, there's a sense of vastness that brings in this idea of the big view so we would make our mind um, like this. You know, what would it be to have a mind like that? And then um, there's this lovely phrase, agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. So we're learning to tolerate. Uh, we understand that we need to tolerate things that are unpleasant. That's often what you know people are arriving with first in practice is some dukkha or suffering and needing to find a balance with it. But the implication here is that we also need to learn to be balanced with very pleasant sensation, um, things that we can get drawn into or excited by or caught up in. So either way, um, the earth can handle those kinds of things. Of course, there's so that's that sort of neutrality uh, that was mentioned. So even with things that we might find disgusting, you know, so it labels, it includes these bodily fluids, again, as a very visceral sort of thing, but we can imagine what would it be like to have a mind that's not disgusted by these things. At this point, maybe I'll put a little aside in also, um, which is that 
this is kind of a, the, the sutta study angle of this, is that um, we might be tempted to bring in modern ideas uh, in hearing about the earth and having dirty things thrown on it and the earth doesn't mind. And we're in an environmental crisis right now and in some ways the earth is telling us that it does mind <laughs> that various things are being done to it. Um, and so I don't think, I think there's a, um, but you can understand that this came out of a very different culture and a very different time uh, where those ideas were not um, common parlance in people's understanding. So we can just note in our mind, okay, I have this response that actually, I don't think the earth <laughs> likes all those things that we're throwing on it. But for the purpose of sutta study, we can say, okay, this is an analogy for the mind. And um, maybe our first exercise in equanimity is allowing those feelings about how we may feel about environmental situation, not to color our understanding of what the Buddha is pointing towards in terms of, of mental development. So that's, um, yeah, just a little aside. Um, so then the sutta goes on uh, to talk about other elements. It's not really only about the earth. It's about a teaching on um, making our mind to resemble some of these physical elements. It has a broader context in the sutta, but um, so it goes on to, I won't read the entire passage for the other elements, but um, just highlight the key part. So he says, Rahula, develop meditation that is like water. Or when you develop meditation that is like water, arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as people wash clean things and dirty things, excrement, urine, spittle, pus, and blood in water, and the water is not humiliated, etc., um, so we have a sense then of the, there's a different verb where people are washing things. And then for fire, it says, just as fire burns clean things and dirty things and is not upset about what it's burning. And for mm -hmm. air, just as air blows upon or blows over clean things and dirty things. Again, there's a sense of not the air doesn't mind if it's blowing over the excrement or if it's blowing over beautiful flowers. It's the same to the air. So, so, but these other ones, so the, the water and the fire and the air, at least for me, uh, they point to kind of a different kind of strength. These are more fluid. They're not sort of, sort of solid um, like the earth, which also has a sense of strength. These are, we can start to imagine that the mind isn't rigid in these cases. Um, it doesn't have to be rigid or overpower or be stronger than these things that it's uh, encountering, but instead it can just be strong and steadfast um, in a sort of a flowing way. So that can also be an inspirational image sometimes in meditation. Sometimes we have this sort of sense of solidity and strength like that. And sometimes we have more a sense of flow or of being able to move around or even through things. And that's the way that we're not caught up in them. So I think we're encouraged to um, uh, notice that the mind has different flavors like this also. And then it gets to the, um, there's a fifth element mentioned here, which is space. Sometimes the teachings include space along with um, the four material elements. Later ones even include consciousness as a sixth element, but that's not in the sutta. So in the fifth element, the language changes a little bit. Um, he says, Rahula developed meditation that is like space. And then uh, he says, just as space is not established anywhere, so too develop meditation that's like space. So it doesn't actually um, have the uh, references to the clean and the dirty things anymore. 
um, and just says that space is not established. And so we have here yet another kind of strength, strength through emptiness. Maybe the greatest stability is not to stand on anything, um, not to stand on anything at all, which just kind of goes against our intuition. That's maybe being pointed to. A little story is that I once asked a teacher, um, somewhat jokingly, the uh, classic Western philosophical question, which is, um, what happens when an irresistible force meets an immovable object? So this is something that uh, Western philosophers pondered for a long time, and there are answers to this. So um, I asked this Buddhist teacher that, and without missing a beat, he said, nothing, an immovable object offers no resistance. So that's a different approach, right? We would normally think, oh, right, to be immovable, you have to have infinite mass. But actually, if you have zero mass, you're also immovable. So it's, um, I thought it was a good answer. <laughs> and then um, these, these meditations are actually quite practical. I mean, these are things that we're doing on the cushion to, to cultivate the mind and a sort of a feeling in the mind about how it can be with changing and pleasant and unpleasant experience. But there's a, a story of, of the same monk, Analio, that I mentioned earlier, who um, he had been doing a lot of med- this kind of meditation, and he had just been doing the space meditation and had you know, been cultivating the mind of space and was um, sitting with that. And uh, he finished his meditation. And at that time, he was doing some very controversial work on the suttas. He was doing some analysis that not everybody agreed with. And a monk, another monk came in who was angry about the kind of work that he was doing and the conclusions he was coming to. He didn't agree with how he was interpreting the suttas. And so this monk actually came and, and began shouting at Analio and having very you know, energetic um, objections to his work. And he said that his mind just started focusing on the space in between them and around them and was kind of just including all of that in the big picture, right? This is starting to sound like the equanimity. And he found that he didn't need to react at all. Um, and he, he just sat and listened and he was fully present. He didn't dissociate or, but he also didn't get angry back. And eventually the monk kind of blew out his energy and departed. <laughs> so, you know, had a, had a very practical impact right then. So we can see then that the cultivation of this, um, stability on the cushion can lead to greater stability off the cushion also. So there's some sort of a direct application. So you might want to try, I don't know, try one of these elements out when you feel some need in your daily life to, to be stable. If something's going on in your household or something that you read or something starts to feel a little upsetting or uh, destabilizing, maybe try one of these, try water or, or air or earth space and see if that um, uh, changes your interaction with the situation. So this, this flavor of equanimity has to do with the steadiness in the face of what meditation or life is throwing at us. And um, sometimes just to throw in one more term that you'll sometimes hear in relation to equanimity, particularly this flavor of it, is that often all the things that would throw us off in life are summarized into what are called the eight worldly winds. Um, which is a simple list that we, of things we're all familiar with. Pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. And we've all experienced all eight of those. 
And the teachings say you don't ever end. You don't, we, we try very hard to get four of them and not have the other four, but um, the teachings are very clear that this is just part of human life is that we have all of these. So equanimity is a way of, of handling all of these um, changing qualities of life. So you can see that there's a sense here, just the last point I'll make is of, of kind of not picking up. So things that might tempt us to react or get involved, we just don't pick them up. <laughs> Joseph Goldstein says, don't bite, don't bite. You know, stuff comes into your mind and it looks like a hook, <laughs> but don't bite it. <laughs> um, it's not a good idea. And so um, I would say then that this not picking up, which is emphasized here, the complement of that, maybe just the other side of the hand, would be letting go. You know, anything that has been picked up, we can let it go. Things that are potentially in the way, we let them go. And this will be something that Ying is going to talk about uh, later today, this aspect of letting go, which is also part of this insight or factor of awakening quality of equanimity. Um, yeah, so that's, um, that's maybe a good overview of this um, initial part that we're probably familiar with. And so now we'll go on and, um, and do some breakout groups. Great. Thank you, Kim. Yeah, so this idea of making the mind like earth, water, fire, air, or space is a way in which we use our imagination rather than just uh, mindfulness. Or maybe it's not uh, imagination. Maybe it's tuning in to what we're experiencing at that moment. But um, we'd like to put you into some breakout groups where you can talk about this uh, amongst yourselves, these ideas. That is like, how does using such an image, or maybe it's an experience for you, support the steadiness or letting go that um, equanimity is about this? Um, and oh, it's telling me my internet connection is unstable. Can you hear me? Yes, thumbs up. Okay, thank you. Yeah, these pesky internets. So, um, you in, in a in a in a group, it's will um, put you into groups of four or three, and it can be really helpful just to say one sentence, one idea, and then have it go to the next person, and they say one sentence, one idea, and they go to the next person, and then if there's a fourth person, it goes to that person, and then it comes back around, and now. The first person, having heard what others have said, maybe has a new idea or can reach a little bit further um, because maybe the obvious things were said in the first round. So in this way, kind of like as together, as kind of like a team in some way, you can explore this question of how does using such an image or maybe it's an experience of the elements earth, water, fire, air, and space, which is included in the sutta. How does it support the steadiness? How does it uh, provide some stability? How can we incorporate this in our practice if you have? Or if you haven't, how might you imagine that it um, could support a practice? And um, for this day long, this day long, this, this breakout group, we trust we're not going to keep you here all day. <laughs> For this breakout group, um, we can go into um, alphabetical order by screen name. So um, person whose name is closest to A goes first and closest to Z goes last, with apologies to people who have their name closest to A and closest to Z. 
And I think that's it. So I have fun and kind of exploring this idea. How does using such an image of earth, water, fire, air, space support practice? Have fun. Enjoy. We'll see you back Enjoy. here in 15. I'm going to admit one person more. I think we're all. And we have just a few minutes. We'd love to just get a sense uh, very briefly from, you know, just a few people of uh, how that was. Any, any, anything of interest that, that came up that would be useful to share? Um, and just feel free. We're not a small group, but uh, we're not a huge group. Feel free to just unmute. Uh, if you'd like, raise a physical hand or use the blue hand. But uh, again, maybe just a couple comments from people about what that was like and whether anything uh, of interest came up for you. Ah, Randy, unmute yourself. Thanks. Thanks. First of all, I want to thank you for such a scholarly approach to this topic. It's very wonderful for, to me. And um, I just wanted to express that those breakout groups are very powerful um, and bring to my, me, to my awareness, um, things that I would never have associated with the topic. And so it's very thought-provoking and uh, and helpful and expansive to awareness of the uh, the subject. So, because we got into the contemplation of impermanence and courage and humility and middle way that uh, just this spark of equanimity um, brought out. Nice, beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Randy. And Jerry, maybe one more comment. Um, I tried to share with the group, I don't know how coherently, so I'll try a second time. Is I, I, uh, I appreciate him quickly going to the fact that some of the metaphor seems outdated uh, because of our modern times. So I was disturbed by that, but it, within a day, I found a way to save the meaning of, of the metaphor by say, updating it to the fact is our, 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 our minds, our mind and hearts can only take so much defilement, so many toxins in the modern era, so much stimulation. And so there is a point of which maybe part of equanimity is, is, is limiting the, the insults that we take on. Otherwise, we will get out of balance like the earth and get polluted. Yeah, interesting. Nicely, nicely put. Thanks for that. And I think that's a nice, uh, provides a nice um, pivot point for us to do a little meditation practice with, with these ideas. And it's an interesting thing. We noticed the, the four of us, as we discussed it, Diana has now uh, left to do teaching in another, probably another Zoom room. Uh, she'll rejoin us, of course, Thursday and Saturday. Um, but the four of us talked about how in reading those passages, when these um, unclean bodily fluids or bodily fluids that can be unclean are mentioned, we can even now at this distant remove of 2,500 years, feel some of the, uh, feel some of the effect that can have in the mind. And we can recognize that the mind isn't entirely 
um, is an entirely like the earth, like water, like air, like space. Uh, and so um, there's an opportunity even in interacting with what happens when we, when we uh, hear the text read or read it, there's an opportunity to just sort of watch how much equanimity does rise to meet, to meet that moment. So let's do a little meditation practice. When we have said study and practice, uh, we, we, in a way, we want to include this heart of our practice that is, is the meditation. And I propose to sort of lead us in a guided meditation uh, that in, in this very brief set of 15 minutes will make reference to the seven factors of awakening and to equanimity as sort of the capstone factor, but without naming them, without numbering them, without maybe treating them in precisely the order that they're presented in the texts, but really to just sort of give an example of how this, how, how equanimity as a factor of awakening can arise in the meditation practice if we sort of get out of the way and make, make room for it. Um, so here's an invitation to sit with, sit with us, sit together for 15 minutes. We can bring the, the eyes down, let the eyes fall as we enter the meditation space and recognize that as we do so, we're performing a rebalancing. As visual creatures, the visual realm is very stimulating. And when we bring the eyes down as we begin meditation, we bring our attention to our inner, our inner world, inner experience. Maybe we begin our meditation by checking in with the posture and recognizing it. So in this case, that perform a subtle rebalancing. If we're sitting, walking, or standing, we balance the upper body over the, the torso, over the lower body. And we seek in the meditation to establish uh, a place of balance between active present engagement with our experience and sort of a relaxed, easeful um, attitude toward what emerges in, in our meditation experience. Maybe we take a few deep breaths in through the nose and out through the mouth. And here too, we balance that sort of energetic uh, addition that that additional oxygen when it hits the blood provides nothing magic going on with these deep breaths if we breathe out fully through an out breath there's a, a physical relaxation and letting go that happen and here too we're balancing that that cultivation of energetic presence with our experience and the the easeful letting go that can happen then the breath frequently settles into um, its regular meditation rhythm. And we connect with it in the body. We notice where it is in the body, perhaps in the abdomen, the chest and shoulders, the nostrils. And as we connect with it, we perform again a rebalancing this world of the breath in the center of our attention, the center of our world, literally in the core of our being, is a place of natural balance, natural rest. And in contrast to the world of thought with its 
quick pace with its complexity, with the way it can unbalance us. Settling in with the breath, bringing the breath to the center of our attention is a way we rebalance. We connect with this breath that is simple, uncomplicated, slow, and in its nature balanced. It's true physically and it's true uh, intellectually too. The breath requires nothing, demands nothing. We don't have to fret about how we breathed 10 minutes ago, 10 years ago. We don't have to plan the next breath or figure out how we're going to become expert master breathers. When we settle in with the breath, we, we rebalance. Maybe we let go of some of those strivings, but maybe we just, maybe we just set them aside for a moment and we, we bring into balance another capacity of mind to enjoy the restful, easy, um, simple, uncomplicated presence that we can find with the breath. As we breathe, as we sort of maintain the breathing in sort of the center of our attention, of course, we notice that the mind will get snagged, get caught up, return to thought patterns that we left uh, when we began an hour or so ago. We'll find maybe the mind feels contracted or tight, that it feels uh, burdened, heavy, and we can, as we reconnect with the breath in the body, as we open back up to the breath, sort of as the center of our experience, we rebalance. The mind does its things. We rely on the mind to do these things. In the meditation, we don't push anything that's happening in the mind away as unfortunate or bad. And we just reconnect with a part of our experience that allows us to attune ourselves, attune our attention to other things that are available in our experience. And we do this fundamental act of showing up for our experience, this, this, essential, this essential expression of self-care, just to notice what's it really like here right now. Things happen, maybe physical sensations happen in the body, maybe there's discomfort, maybe there's uh, uncomfortable movements in the emotional currents that we become aware of as we sit. And in this meditation, we maintain a, an attitude of, of neither, being in, neither being strongly for or against what comes up. We notice agreeable and disagreeable contacts when they arise. And we sort of adopt an attitude of 
not letting them remain or endure in our experience for long. Instead, continually returning, rebalancing by connecting with the breath in the center. From time to time, we notice the minds perhaps become a little more caught up in some quicker activity, thought processes more complex and maybe less balanced. No problem. We just tug attention back to the breath or we open back up to the breath and let it become the center of our attention, the center of our world right now. Just noticing what it's like right now, connecting with the breath and the body, connecting with that constant rebalancing that the breath performs, just enough oxygen in, just enough waste gases out. Connecting with this essential part of our experience and of our spiritual knowing in which we don't have to be for or against. The mind does what the mind does. Maybe it gets a little bit caught or sped up. And we do this rebalancing. We reconnect with the momentum of the breath, with its simplicity. We enjoy its balance. And we use it to rebalance. Reminding ourselves that in this space, there's no need to be for what's happening or against what comes up. No reason to be opposed to the mind's movements. We just keep doing this rebalancing, reconnecting. Maybe reminding ourselves that here, in this still collected space, there's nothing to prove, nothing to resist.
with the first bell signaling returning from the meditation, you may notice that a deeper breath frequently just happens. There's a rebalancing happening there as we prepare to come back into a different sort of energetic presence. The second bell might notice some attention to the posture, to the shrugging the shoulders, stretching the feet, moving the neck. And the third breath, feel free to bring your eyes back up. Thank you. And let me just say um, this about that practice. Sometimes equanimity or equipoise can seem like a high bar. Um, and yet we can connect with it just by thinking about the verb rebalancing. Rebalance or balance is a, is a literal translation of equipoise, equal weight. And it's a verb which is always a good place to settle into our practice. And this can be a helpful way to take it in from the meditation practice into daily life, to just reflect that this isn't a practice so much or only about getting to a place of equanimity. It's a, plaque, it's a, it's a practice about constantly reestablishing balance, rebalancing. It's a, the, the means and the end are one and the same. We get there by doing it. We get there by practicing it. Ying. How lovely. Uh, thank you so much for my uh, lovely uh, co-teachers who kind of teed me up uh, for this portions of uh, Dharma teaching. And uh, just to say that um, for those who wanted to read the sutta excerpts um, that we are going to share today, are we shared one piece already and I did uh, uh, putting a, a Google Doc link uh, in the chat box and those who don't have it uh, will use this for this part of the teaching as well. So at this point um, you've heard on a couple of different flavors of um, the word uh, opeka, equanimity. Um, this is a sense of a balance uh, that David talked about and then Kim talked about. And um, uh, a big view, a kind of overview of the situation, a uh, vastness of uh, this quality. So I will share yet another flavor that's often associated with the word upaka, and that is uh, letting go. So in fact, uh, the prominent Chinese translation of this term, upeka, is this Chinese character, which I'll um, type in the chat box as well for those who read the Chinese. <laughs> I apologize, I don't have a, another language translation he, here. But for those who do read the Chinese and, and fond of looking at what this term uh, character is, and can take a look at it in the chat box. And this character itself, uh, the literal meaning of it is to let go, to abandon and to discard. So it's uh, interesting to kind of uh, feel the effect of those different words, uh, equipoise, equanimity, and the letting go uh, on us, you know, medita meditatively and felt sense way. 
So um, for me, I started Buddhism through Chinese Buddhism, and I read Chinese text and Chinese agamas, and and for a long time, my default way of associating with Upeka is that of letting go. I didn't think there were other ways of relating to this term. But later on, uh, when I uh, was exposed to English translations, and I realized, wow, this other ways of translating this term had brought up all this, you know, kind of very different feel to it. So equanimity uh, become kind of a, a uh, an opening. And so I think we all shared a little perspective about this because this is going to be part of a sutta study process. It's a word of a, uh, like upeka and many other Pali terms uh, may have this multifaceted a spectrum of uh, meaning depending on the context that they're used, even in the text that we share. Uh, suttas that we shared uh, for today, uh, upeka are used in different ways and they don't always mean the same thing. And so it's a part of our practice to learn to open ourselves up to this different facets facets as we read them um, and watch out how we can easily lock ourselves down by the fixed idea of what those terms might mean. So watch out for that and uh, um, learn to open ourselves up and explore this. Some of this um, exploration might feel uh, challenging, but that's part of the game as well. So letting go. And the forest, um, Thai forest master Ajahn Chah said, if you let go a little, you have a little happiness. If you let go a lot, you have a lot of happiness. If you let go completely, you will have complete happiness. And so many of you probably have heard of this um, quote before. So um, and many of you probably have heard a lot of letting go talks as well. Um, so for today, I'd like to link this sense of a letting go um, back to the notion of a capstone. So how can letting go be thought of the capstone of the Dharma practice? You know, and the awakening factor, the Brahma Viharas and the Samadhi practices and we'll be sharing. And so um, I want to share maybe two perspectives on this. The first way that we can think of equanimity and the flavor of a letting go uh, to be the capstone of our practice in that it is a necessary condition in our practice. You may have heard of uh, this, see, uh, this seeing, saying, things break down without a capstone. So without some degrees of letting go, equanimity, our whole system of a Dharma practice will collapse and kind of fall flat to the ground. We cannot practice mindfulness without some hint of equanimity, some hint of letting go, letting go of the 
constant hooks by whatever uh, might come into our senses. Uh, um, if you are aware, and uh, you probably notice this already, there's already some sense of a detachment, some letting go of the hook, and to maybe some small degree, and then maybe to a large degree that that, that is happening. And as um, the capacity of letting go mature and grows, um, it can become very potent. And so the sense of being hooked, being pushed and pulled and can weaken. And I always notice that, um, for example, and nowadays when my son rub his hand on the dinner table on his socks, I just laugh. <laughs> I used to get angry about this because, you know, how can you eat and still wipe your dirty hands on your socks? <laughs> no, I'm just laughing. Um, so there can be different ways um, we began to relate to the things and that maybe used to annoy us uh, in small ways and big ways. And so that's when equanimity uh, began to shape up our practice. And so this way of being the capstone of our practice and it keeps our practice up and hold our Dharma life. So our life doesn't collapse uh, back to this forces of unconscious habit again and again and again, right? And we are all very familiar with this kind of uh, unconscious habits that's in us. The second way uh, that I would relate to um, this notion of a capstone is that equanimity functions as the capstone uh, in the sense of a platform or a launch point for further deepening of insight and wisdom, which leads to an unfolding of an awakening process. And so this is what um, Kim and David have hinted and, and talked about in terms of um, equanimity being an awakening factor. And so this factor um, is a list of the seven, the last one in the list of seven as well. Um, and the unfolding of this path uh, with a strong sense of equanimity, in particular with a sense of a letting go, will lead to a complete letting go, which in the tradition sometimes equal to a full awakening. So we'll look at um, the sutta um, uh, excerpt um, a little bit today. And this is a sutta number uh, Majmanikaya 140. Um, both of the senses of a capstone being a necessary condition of our practice, as well as being an awakening factor, a launch point for an awakening process are presented uh, in this particular sutta. But um, the first aspect of being a, a condition is maybe it can be thought of as hinted, maybe not quite explicit. Uh, explicit. Um, but the second aspect of a being a, a awakening factor uh, for 
um, the awakening process to unfold is more explicit. We won't have time to discuss the whole sutta, so we'll look at uh, some bits and pieces um, related to the second aspect of being the capstone. And so uh, in the Google Doc, and this is the, and you have to scroll down to the later part, I'll read some of the pieces here uh, today. Uh, this is based on Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation uh, in paragraph number 20, starts with the first line. Then there remains only equanimity, purified and bright, malleable, wieldy, and radiant. I'm going to skip the simile here uh, and then jump to paragraph 21. Um, the practitioner understand, understands thus. If I were to direct this equanimity so purified and bright to the base of infinite space, and then also the uh, three other uh, different formless um, uh, samadhi states, and that are the base of infinite consciousness and to the base of nothingness, to the base of neither perception nor non-perception, and to develop my mind accordingly, then this equanimity of mind supported by that base, clinging to it, would remain for a long time. And so a few things that's very interesting here uh, to point out. Uh, the first thing is, you can see, uh, I love the beautiful words that is describing this state of equanimity to start out with in the first line. As Kim was saying, this equanimity is not cold. It just kind of rock solid on moving. Um, but rather, it's a very alive, awake, and responsive state of a being. And so it's ripe and it's very flexible. And with this kind of a quality uh, in this form of equanimity, it can respond to wisdom and insight that unfolds from it. So it's very clearly knowing that this formless um, state of a concentrated state of a being uh, in the um, classic teachings and this are a very refined state of a being that are deeply sublime and peaceful already. And each of them have very little sense of grasping and holding. And for some people, you know, being in the state might even feel like, you know, this is it. <laughs> but there's a wisdom here that sees and knows there is this, this is subtle clinging to it. It's through this clinging that this state of being remains and can remain for quite some time, for a long time. And so the wisdom unfolds even further in the next uh, paragraph. The practitioner understands thus, if I were to direct this equanimity so purified and bright, to the base of infinite space and the dot, 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 the other three formless attainments, and to develop my mind accordingly. This would be conditioned. 
he or she does not form any condition or generate any volition tending toward towards either being or non-being, since he or she does not form any condition or generate any volition towards tending towards either being or non-being. He does not cling to anything in this world. When he or she does not cling, he or she is not agitated. When he or she is not agitated, the practitioner personally attains ibana, and the person understands. Thus, birth is destroyed; the holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more coming to any state of being. Now, sometimes reading this kind of、uh, very technical. Uh, passages. It can feel like a reading a, I don't know, a doctor's notes. <laughs> Lots of terms that are,、um, you know, maybe not very accessible to us.、Um, so,、uh, you know, sometimes this is the、uh, the art of reading sutta as well. Maybe we'll run into a lot of these terms that looks confusing, and we'll say, you know. What the heck does this mean? Being and non-being and volition. So sometimes we just hold this in our、um, in our mind, in our being, in our learning for some time, and、uh, continue to study and、um, and allow this understanding to kind of、uh, emerge over time in us. But I do wanted to say a few words about this uh, next um, uh, section of the the sutta,、uh, maybe in the summary form. That is, the sutta describes a specific sequence of unfolding, a specific form of a letting go process that's moving through the four formless absorption states. And maybe in some ways you can think of each of this has even lesser degrees of grasping and holding, but even、uh, with this refined states of being, it's still impermanent. And the the text says conditioned, it's constructed, and will be、uh, will destroy will be destroyed will and fade away. And so, with that understanding, one comes to a point that no longer links to this way or that way, this thing or that thing, this state of being or that state of being. And so, what、uh, Kim was pointing at, there's a profound sense of letting go, and one can be equanimous without having to land itself on anything at all. So the text says, "Not clinging to anything in this world." Maybe a kind of form of equanimity that lands in emptiness, not on anything at all. And so it's a gradual unfolding, and you know that's one thing to、uh, to say. And the other thing is,、uh, this is only one form of unfolding. Now, one per- specific sequence that the t-、uh, the、uh, Buddha 
taught to this particular individual who was sitting with him all night long and not knowing it was a Buddha who he claimed to be his teacher had showed up. And, uh, but um, the unfolding doesn't have to be in this specific sequence. And so as we read more suttas and this kind of awakening process may happen in different ways in our own practice, it may unfold in different ways. But, but in general, there is a, a deepening of letting go in our practice. And so I want to uh, just point that out as a caveat. And so allow our process, our process of um, our practice to unfold in our own ways. But notice you know, how this process happens and so that we can learn from it and, and grow. Uh, accordingly. So I'm going to end now by, uh, so thank you all. And then um, we'll switch to, then uh, open up uh, to some Q&A for today's teaching um, at this point. So, and, uh, you know, you can um, ask questions or share comments about the uh, whole mornings of the teaching in the last hour, uh, almost hour and a half. And so uh, feel free to uh, use your hand. We only have a few minutes left in this, in this class. Oh, I see Nancy's hand up there, Yang. Oh, yes. Go ahead, please. Hi, um, I just wanted to uh, thank you for the particular sutta with the visualization of the elements. I think that, you know, just practically in, in daily practice, when uh, I find myself um, becoming irritated or somehow not at ease, that just having those visualizations um, are very helpful. Uh, we talked about this in our small breakout group, but um, it's a lovely, they're lovely images to have. Thank you. Thank you, Great. Thank you. Thank you. Yang Hui, please. And, uh, okay, good, yeah. I see. There's also David's hand is up. Go ahead, Yanghui. Thank you. I wanted to elaborate more on the elements because I started, you know, my kids watched that Avatar. Do you know that? It's a great cartoon thing. It's airbenders, earthbenders, firebenders. So we can work with these elements. So I started thinking about how, how to skillful ways that what is it I'm counter, encountering in the external world? How is it affecting me? And what element would be useful? to meet that. And so I've been thinking about, yeah, with air would be some air blowing stuff on every single part. Like you can't escape air. It's everywhere. It's it, right? So I was thinking something like metal would be like air. And I was thinking about like fire or something that burns away. I was thinking about unwholesome thoughts, like ill well, things that really need to be burned away, like right away, really harsh and powerful and violent like that. I was thinking of that. And, and earth is a very nourishing, absorbing, you know, we, 
that relates to it. And water was something more about cooling anger and things like that. And space is definitely around emptiness and self thoughts and selfing. And so I thought, yeah. Anyway, just a further elaboration of those elements, really lovely. And how it relates also to the, the Satipatthana, the first foundation and everything flows and changes. And anyway, thank you so nice. much. It's really lovely. Nice, nice. And I'd say the uh, the uh, second sutta we shared, uh, we didn't uh, we didn't read the first part. The first part is about elements as well, and so letting go of the grasping of identifying oneself based on elements. You know, we think of this body as me, right? And this earth and the air we breathe in, it's me. So there's this gradual transition of letting go into the deeper uh, kind of more refined state of letting go. But the early part uh, is the letting go of uh, maybe more uh, every day that we kind of uh, feel and sense kind of uh, uh, identity or solidity form of the being uh, is to be let go as well as part of the process. Yeah, the sutta that Ying quoted is called The Exposition of the Elements, MN 140. If you want to read the whole thing, the first part is about those those physical ones. And uh, David. Yeah, I, I just want to address the, the understanding part because the way I understand the, the suttas, you know, they, if I recall them correctly, they both talk about not me, myself, or mine. They um, they talk about not you know relying so much on cognizing. You know, we can take these suttas as a formula that we apply, and then that itself can be clinging. Because I believe, aren't there other suttas that say that one abides in the base of uh, nothingness? One does not have to form an intention, a, I mean, a will. And one does not have to will to move to the base of, you know, infinite consciousness or whatever the order is. It happens naturally. It arises naturally. And so on through the whole process. So I think we can get that we can interpret mindfulness to be this tight control that gets in the way of the progression of the path. And I'm offering that as a question. You can knock it down or affirm it or say something in between, however you think is appropriate. Now, please don't worry about hurting my feelings. You know, I, I'll have a first thought about that, which is, um, you know, that's uh, several things. You know, I don't think there are templates here, uh, but more a, an invitation. And it's interesting, the seven factors, for example, that mindfulness is the first of the second factors. It's just a doorway, or that at least if we read it as being a series that culminates in the cultivation or the opening up of, of equanimity. Um, you know, it, it is exactly as you kind of lay out, David, uh, something that shouldn't limit us, you know, and when and if it does, if that's part of what, you know, is possible in it. Uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're sort of... Um, um, you know, curtailing our, the capacity to sort of open to those broader things. So anyway, those are the thoughts that come to me. I do think the, 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 these texts are so rich and so deep 
um, that I don't find in them so much um, inconsistencies as much as, as Kim said in her, her early talk, just, you know, lots of different flavors, lots of different ways in, uh, and not all of them appropriate to each of us. There, there's a way for everybody in here, you know, and there's a way in which we, each of us make the path our own, um, which is to be, is not about just any old path will do or making up any old, any old path is valid, but making, making it our own, really, really living it um, and bringing the study into our practice as we, as we attempt to do it in these series. Kim or Ying, any other thoughts on that? Uh, I think we're right at the end of the hour. Yeah. So I feel uh, maybe with a, a little bit of equanimity, mm -hmm. <laughs> we all kind of uh, maybe fired you yeah, up. There's so much more to say. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> fired ourselves up <laughs> with the curiosity of uh, the, the suttas and what is being said. And, you know, I just invite you um, to make it a part of uh, your homework and uh, practice and, and the learning. As I invite you to uh, go back and reread this. Uh, each time, maybe something different would come up. And if you're, uh, you're curious, we didn't get the chance to talk about the context of um, this different text that we extract from. <laughs> and it's a, it has a huge uh, impact on how we then relate to the little text that we, we shared. So uh, please you know, feel free to reread uh, MN62 and MN140. I did send that uh, to, um, we sent that out in the email as well and investigate the experience with elements. I think many of you shared the connection with that. Um, how is it um, you know, making the meditation be like the earth? Fire, water, air, space. And so how do we, how does it support the cultivation of letting go? And so may this practice benefit uh, all of us, may it benefit all beings. So till next time. Thank you. Thursday. See you Thursday. Thursday. Take care, everyone. If you want, you can unmute and say goodbye. Thank you so much. Hi, Kim. Hi. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you all, teachers. Hi, Thank, Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Take care. Bye. Everyone.